Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Life with GDPR. This is the podcast series where, together with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Cordery Compliance in London, we take a look at data privacy, data protection, and all issues related to GDPR, the English data protection law, and data protection and data privacy laws in the United States. It's a podcast that every compliance practitioner needs to be a listen to and be a part of the discussion going forward for this most important issue in compliance today. I'm Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. Life after GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Life with GDPR. I am joined, as always, by Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Quartery in London. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks very much, Tom. Jonathan, we had a case involving Jehovah's Witnesses in the United Kingdom, specifically around um, data privacy and data protection, uh, that I found uh, very interesting. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, um, are well known, uh, certainly in the United States and in the United Kingdom. The the witness part comes from they actually go door to door and witness for uh, their belief in uh, uh, religion. Uh, They have... um, been at the forefront of religious freedom cases in the United States. So I was therefore very interested that they're at the forefront of uh, what appears to be a very interesting case around data privacy. So, I, and uh, the requirements now that companies uh, provide subject access requests. So with that somewhat long-winded introduction, I was wondering if you could uh, give us the background to this case. Yeah, sure. Happy to. It actually starts off as a Finnish case. So what happens is, as you've you've rightly said, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are known for their door-to-door visits to people. And what happened is a community of Jehovah's Witnesses in Finland uh, went door-to-door collecting information from people which they uh, and those groups had various uh, memory aids to make their uh, outreach more efficient so one of them for example was a map of a particular locale and they'd draw things on the map so they'd effectively uh, they're technically called suppression lists but it's sort of the wrong description when you're drawing on a map in some respects. They would just draw on the map and say, these people don't want us to visit. But equally, they might write in uh, information regarding some people who might be targeted for repeat visits on the basis of potentially being being receptive uh, to, to that happening. And um, the Finnish Data Protection Authority uh, for the benefit of all Finnish speakers, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce uh, what they're called, but uh, the TT, let's just call them the Finnish Data Protection Authority, uh, decided that this um, outreach did come within uh, data protection legislation. This is the earlier Finnish Act before May when the GDPR came in. And they said that the... Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses had to comply with this Finnish data protection legislation. The Jehovah's Witnesses said they didn't think that was correct. And what happens in these cases, as we've mentioned on other podcasts, is where an issue of EU law is involved, the Finnish courts can refer the matter to the European court who look at 
the uh, at, at who's correct and the correct interpretation of EU law. In this case, it was the uh, Data Protection Directive, which is the predecessor of GDPR. But on on the basis of most of what they decided, the, the case is useful for GDPR as well. So the court uh, looked at a few things. First of all, the Jehovah's Witnesses were trying to say that it was it, it, it came within what's often called the domestic purposes exemption. So if I have people round to my house for a dinner party and it's just to socialize, let's say we decide to get big Texas steaks and put them on the barbecue. And I say, Tom, how do you like your steak? If it's just between us and it's our part of our domestic household, the fact that you say uh, as rare as they come to me, I can record that because it's purely for the domestic purpose. But the court said here, this was beyond a domestic purpose. It wasn't just a household activity of either the Jehovah's Witnesses or the individuals who made up that group that were going knocking on doors. So they've said that the domestic purposes exemption didn't apply. And that's consistent with many of the cases that we've seen recently. There's one involving uh, surveillance cameras, for example, monitoring a neighbor. We know that as a general rule, the courts don't like the domestic purposes exemption. And, and again, as a general rule, that, that exemption is narrower than most people think. If you're doing some sort of commercial activity, even activity on behalf of a not-for-profit, then it's unlikely that the domestic purposes exemption is going to save you. Secondly, they said that the data was covered by data protection law even in hard copy format. Now, we know all of this already. We know that data protection law applies to manual data processing. But um, uh, the, the, the law as a specific says it only applies to hard copy data where it forms part of a filing system. Now, again, the courts have, have generally been pretty ready to say that if you can retrieve it, then it's part of a, of a filing system. So things like filer faxes, which I know uh, were popular, I don't know, amongst the Gordon Gecko generation, then then they, <laughs> then, then they were caught by dead protection law, uh, you know, the last iteration of dead protection law. And maps are the same. If you can get them back again and interrogate data on the basis of that hard copy, copy map, then that's going to fall within GDPR. And that's particularly interesting, of course, when you look at things like internal investigations, when you look at things like e-discovery, because it's quite hard to ingest data like that, particularly if it's handwritten on you know, huge maps into any type of system to interrogate it. So that's a particularly interesting bit of the case, I think, and will frighten, I think, some commercial concerns, particularly if they have their people do large volumes of hard copy notes, because they'll have to potentially show those uh, uh, that data under subject access requests, and they'll have to invent uh, or, or tailor some sort of a system uh, to enable that data to be disclosed to the individuals involved. And then maybe the, the, the last bit that's 
interesting is that the court ruled that not only were the individuals data controllers, so subject to data protection rules, but also the the parent religious community, if you like, was also a data controller uh, jointly with its members. Um, even though the the uh, parent body, if you like, didn't have access to the data, uh, even if it didn't tell its members what to do, give them written guidelines or instructions, it could still be a data controller. And it's that bit, I think, that's that's probably the most interesting bit. We've had a lot of debate as to who's a data controller and who's a data processor. Now, you'll remember that both data processors and data controllers have more to do under GDPR. And in the past, data processors could almost wash their hand and say, we're just a processor. We don't have any responsibilities under the data protection legislation. That's not true anymore. But uh, equally, a lot of people have said, well, uh, let's say it's, I don't know, uh, a helpline, they might have said in the past, well, I'm obviously the data controller because it's my employees, it's my people who are going to phone in, and the organization handling the calls is a data processor. But distinctions like that get more blurry under uh, under the new legislation, particularly because of all these court decisions. And just because you are the data controller doesn't mean that the other party is the data processor. And just because they're the data processor doesn't mean automatically that you're the data controller. You can have a situation like in the Jehovah's Witnesses case where there's more than one data controller. And that, I know, is something that large organizations are really struggling to get their head around. And it's, it, it's always a very technical point and requires a bit of effort. And obviously, you can't just say in your contract, you're the data controller and I'm the data processor. You can't say that in a memorandum of undertaking, which many people do, because the regulator or the court can always decide that even, so, even though somebody says they're not the data controller, they are. And that's what happened in, in this case. So it's quite easy to become a data controller without realizing it. You know, for example, we've done some work with a uh, a firm of uh, a, a barrister's chambers, and if they do a divorce case where they take um, a file from the wife in the divorce, let's say, and they decide which data to shred and which to keep, then they become the data controller as well. So organizations have to think very carefully, particularly when they're getting things like spreadsheets via email, when they're getting a large volume of emails, they need to work out what their responsibilities might be. Um, so I think it's an interesting case for a lot of reasons. It isn't the first uh, data protection case to involve religion. Had a case called Lindqvist, which uh, very early data protection case uh, at an EU level, which looked at uh, data held in connection with uh, First Communion, but um, but it's clear that their uh, the religious communities are subject to GDPR just as uh, any other organisation is. So with um, this case, uh, particularly on. Um the data controller issue, do you find that 
you gave the example of a, of a law firm and in litigation, but is this something that clients are waking up to or companies are waking up to who may not have previously saw themselves uh, in this position? Or do you really find this uh, this case to be not so much limited on its facts, but people just really not seeing the wider applicability? Yeah, I th- I, no, I think you're right. I think it is of wider applicability. It's, it's not isolated. We've had a Facebook case uh, from there was a referral from one of the German DPAs uh, or through the courts, you know, German DPA through the German court system, then to the European court, which decided similarly in that case, an educational institution had pushed some uh, students and staff onto a Facebook page um, for them to communicate with each other. And the court said there that the educational institution was also a data controller as well as Facebook. So they were responsible, theoretically at least, for Facebook's advertising practices, what they were doing with the data, et cetera, et cetera, because they were both data controllers. We've had a data breach case involving Morrison's, a, a, a large retailer here, a little bit like Walmart, um, where uh, they had uh, somebody from their uh, internal team uh, effectively steal data. He was a data controller because he then copied it and decided what to do with it. But Morrison's were uh, a data controller at the same time because they, you know, it was their employees and they owned that relationship. So it's not a case in isolation on the on the data controller point. But equally, a lot of organizations, they probably struggle with this the most. And a lot of them have assumed that, you know, because you're wearing hat A, then I have to wear hat B. But that's always, it, to my mind, been a false assumption. And, and the courts have underlined that in these, in these three cases, that you can have a situation where everybody in the chain is a data controller. Uh, and obviously, the difficulty of you assuming you're not a data controller is you might not have processes in place to report breaches in time to respond to subject access requests etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's going to get you into trouble if you don't work out exactly what you are in any given situation well jonathan unfortunately we're near the end of our time but this is uh, really a fascinating case uh, obviously jehovah's witnesses are like i said well known both in the united kingdom and the united states continue to be uh, making some law and uh, as always with these cases a much wider applicability for the greater uh, commercial communities so thank you and i look forward to continuing the conversation my pleasure tom thank you this conference will now be recorded Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode with of Life with GDPR. As always, I'm joined by Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery in London. Today, we're going to take up which uh, a case which I think is not only fascinating, but has caught uh, the zeitgeist really of data protection slash data privacy literally across the world. And it involves uh, the U.S. company Facebook, but also ties into a a fairly large scandal which occurred in Britain around Cambridge Analytica and 
re uh, relating back to the most recent U.S. presidential election. So, Jonathan, um, there's lots to unpack here. Could you perhaps explain the connection between, uh, or at least the U.K. connection for Facebook and what they may be uh, facing in terms of an investigation? Yes, absolutely, Tom. Uh, it's, it's a huge investigation, and I think we're going to chip away at the iceberg here. As an indication of size, the UK Information Commissioner has 40, four zero members of staff on this full time, she tells us, and another 20 contractors working just on this whole case. And it's, it's fair to say that whilst this story blew up in the last uh, few months, the UK debt protection regulator, let's give us give us some credit, has been at the forefront of looking at this as an issue. And she first made her uh, first made public pronouncements about this investigation uh, well over a year ago. And she's done a lot of work already to look at various parties involved. So as a very general rule, what uh, prompted the investigation was the suspicion that a Cambridge-based academic, note uh, not in his capacity uh, as working for uh, the University of Cambridge or any of its colleges, uh, he seems to have been doing some projects using data that he got from Facebook. And what then seems to have happened is that he worked with various Cambridge Analytica-related entities, and it is alleged that some of that data taken from the Facebook system by this uh, academic for his research was then used, uh, was then effectively sold to various campaign groups to push advertising, political-related advertising, uh, in front of them on Facebook. And, but, but this investigation is much wider than this. It's well known that the Cambridge Analytica entities are in a state of flux, some of those in uh, liquidation. The academic involved uh, says that uh, he didn't know exactly what was going on. And various other organisations have been dragged into the investigation as well, including an outfit that supports... Uh, expectant mums. So what it's alleged in that case is that um, it's an organization that, that, that we had uh, some support from uh, back in the day when, uh, when my wife was expecting. But basically, this organization offers you support through pregnancy and offers you samples of talcum powder or nappy rash cream or whatever uh, as you leave hospital so that you've got a kit of stuff to start with. Now, it is alleged that all of, well, not, uh, that, that uh, some of that is paid for by the organization then bundling up details of expectant mums or, uh, or recently um, or mums that have recently given birth. And then it was alleged that that data was also sold so that political parties could target uh, political advertising to that community with slightly different messages, you know, like imagine a future for your child under XYZ political party.
So that bit uh, uh, is also now under investigation from the UK regulator as well. And there's a Canadian outfit that are under investigation by the regulator. And at the same time, a US academic made subject access requests. We've talked about those in an earlier podcast to a Cambridge Analytica related entity. Those subject access requests uh, weren't uh, answered to the satisfaction of the regulator. The regulator ordered the entity concerned to uh, uh, comply with an enforcement notice that she issued. They didn't. So there's a criminal investigation into, into that aspect of the case. The other bits so far seem to be civil investigations. So I know that's been a long answer. It's probably summarizing some 15, 16, 17 months of regulatory activity. And obviously, there's a lot more going on than that. But that, that's that's probably some edited highlights of where we're at at the moment. Maybe so one Jonathan, other thing to say, Tom, is which is slightly intriguing in terms of the Brexit debate, et cetera, et cetera, is that obviously Facebook's lead regulator for EU purposes is Ireland. And we know that Facebook uh, have been complained about under GDPR. We know that because Max Schrems, who, who brought the initial action that Not Safe Harbour out has made complaints uh, against Facebook. And they're almost certainly one of the uh, 30 or so cross-border complaints that the European system is currently handling. But in this case, the lead regulator seems to be the UK. And I think that's because Elizabeth Denham, the UK regulator, was sort of first on the scene, if you like. And she's got these 60 individuals handling the investigation. And that's potentially interesting in a post-Brexit world because obviously the UK is is playing a significant role in this investigation. So um, th- there's all sorts of questions about how these investigations are managed post-Brexit if the UK is no longer part of the system. So Maybe that's getting us off at a tangent slightly, but there are other interesting political aspects to this investigation, as well as the main core of it. Jonathan, one of the things I've heard as a potential remedy could be an outright ban of Facebook uh, uh, in the United Kingdom. Is is that an, even an available remedy? It's an available remedy under GDPR. The regulator under pre-GDPR rules can uh, order various things. So they can they can order a, a stop on processing. And under GDPR, those powers are um, are beefed up, if you like. So um, so the, the, there's always a debate, of course, as to which law applies. The bulk of this investigation is under pre-GDPR rules. But if it is alleged that these actions are continuing post 25th May, then the regulator would have post GDPR powers that she can rely on. And Article 58 of GDPR is pretty clear that um, uh, debt protection authorities can order the 
uh, that uh, that a data controller or a data processor provides answers to questions. They can audit. They can uh, seize equipment for their investigation. They can issue warnings, reprimands, but they can also uh, um, effectively have a temporary or permanent limitation on processing. So they can say um, you cannot process data anymore or they can suspend processing whilst an organization does, you know, whatever the regulators asked it to do. Now, of course, those powers can be challenged. And if there were uh, an Article 58 ban, then it's fairly likely, I think, that any corporation would ask the courts to intervene. Ultimately, cases like that can last a long time. It would almost certainly be referred to the ECJ, just as the original Schrems litigation was. So that would probably take around about six years, I would have thought, unless the process was uh, expedited in the meantime. But regulators have threatened this in the past. Uh, Google um, was uh, threatened with limitations on processing, I believe, by the Dutch authorities previously. And this is definitely a, uh, a feather in the regulator's quiver going forward. Well, and being a feather in the cap is uh, always a uh, dangerous position for any corporation to be in. Uh, Jonathan, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I've been visiting with uh, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery. Today's topic was the uh, Facebook imbroglio that it seems to have found itself in, particularly in the United Kingdom, around its work with or at least tangential to Cambridge Analytica. Jonathan, as always, thank you, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. If we can get six years out of this, we'll be, uh, we'll be ahead of the curve. <laughs> My pleasure, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jonathan at jonathan.armstrong at quarterycompliance.com. Hope you'll join us again for another episode of Life with GDPR. Life with GDPR is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.